Although they comprise less than 5% of the world population, indigenous peoples protect 80% of the Earth's biodiversity. How can we support farmers, reverse biodiversity loss, and restore our ecosystems? Thomas Crowther is an ecologist studying the connections between biodiversity and climate change. He is a professor in the Department of Environmental Systems Science at ETH Zurich, chair of the Advisory Council for the United Nations Decade on Ecosystem Restoration, and founder of Restore, an online platform for the global restoration movement. In 2021, the World Economic Forum named him a young global leader for his work on the protection and restoration of biodiversity. Crowther's postdoctoral research transformed the understanding of the world's tree cover, and the study also inspired the World Economic Forum to announce its Trillion Trees Initiative, which aims to conserve and restore one trillion trees globally within the decade. Tom Crowther, welcome to the Creative Process in One Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So trees, as you know, are a biography of this planet. Some trees can live more than 3,000 years, and we can use patterns and cowrie growth rings in ancient forests to reconstruct past El Nino events and create climate models. And trees, they give so much to this planet, and we're only beginning to understand the complexity of their mycorrhizal networks. What drew you to trees specifically? That's a good question. I think I've always been obsessed with the idea of nature and wilderness. When I was a kid, I was the weird one looking under every rock, trying to find lizards and snakes. I was just always obsessed. And then as I went into my university process and my educational process, I actually wanted to study snakes. And my professor told me, do you know what? It might be more useful to study the ecosystems that allow snakes to survive. And in the process, you'll be helping snakes along the way. And that was definitely a bit of good advice. So I really studied the ecosystems, including the soils and the plants above ground and how they shape the ecosystems that all organisms depend on. Explain the concept of the feedback loops and their influence on various aspects of life. Yeah, so feedback loops are a really interesting concept. It's the idea that one thing gives rise to a process that reinforces that thing. That would be a positive feedback loop. So for example, when we see systems with a lot of biodiversity, that biodiversity actually allows more species to survive, giving rise to more biodiversity. And then the, the more species that emerge, the more niches appear, the more complexity there is in the system, the more species can emerge. So biodiversity has a positive feedback loop that supports itself. But there's also negative feedback loops, which are often equally, if not more important, actually. For example, with climate change, we're getting more carbon emitted into the atmosphere. If that can increase the growth of plants, then they can help to fight climate change. They can drive a negative feedback that will hopefully start to limit climate change. And these negative feedbacks are some of the most essential mechanisms through which biodiversity regulates our planetary system. And you've become well-known for calculating the number of trees we have on the planet and how many trees it might be possible to plant to offset the carbon. Right. I would only correct the word plant because we showed a few years ago that the Earth has three trillion trees on it. What a, a fantastic insight about the state of the planet. But what's more useful is that we were also able to use those models to show that there is room for one trillion additional trees. So historically, there would have been about six trillion trees. We've halved that number. And there's the potential if we protect nature to recover a trillion new trees. Now, one sort of misunderstanding or oversimplification that sometimes happens is that people do think that means buy up land and plant trees. And that is absolutely not the case. What we need to do to achieve that is to, to find the thousands or millions of indigenous populations and farmers and local communities 
who are protecting biodiversity and we need to fund those people and buy their products and distribute the flow of wealth on our planet to empower those people. And that's how we build a really sustainable movement. Yes. And you're doing that through Restore. Perhaps you just explain that what that is, a kind of mapping system. So as I say, global restoration really means finding and empowering the millions of local communities and indigenous populations and farmers who are promoting biodiversity. Restore is a digital platform, sort of like Google Maps, but for restoration. So rather than seeing coffee shops and supermarkets, you will see conservation projects and indigenous-led restoration initiatives. Currently on Restore, I think we have around 140,000. So you can go on there for free right now and find thousands and thousands of these amazing heroes of nature. And you can zoom in and you can see every single tree on the ground. You can see every single bush and you can fund them or you can buy their coffee or you can go visit their projects and do ecotourism. There's a myriad of ways that we can all support their efforts by also improving our own lives. Yeah, so it's really part of the regenerative agricultural movement, which I've also heard, these are big claims, again, like planting three trillion trees or restoring, promoting the growth of three trillion trees, is that if the whole world adopted regenerative agriculture, then we could presently absorb all the carbon that we're currently emitting to the atmosphere. Regenerative agriculture would have a huge contribution. We're talking 30 to 50% of our carbon emissions would be sequestered in rejuvenating ecosystems if we could transform the very negative ways that we impact nature, if we can transform them into positive ones with regenerative agriculture that promotes biodiversity in our agricultural systems, and by conserving the forest that's still there, we could really have this huge impact. Now, it is worth stressing, we need that alongside cuts to emissions. Every step we can possibly take to limit emissions will only help nature and it will increase the power of nature to achieve those goals. So we really can't be talking about this in terms of nature or cutting emissions, because we definitely need both. Adopting such a wide scale regenerative program, it's not just you have to educate people, you have to support them and you make sure that knowledge is passed on correctly so that you really get those increased yields. That's exactly it. There's a wealth of knowledge held by these local communities and farmers around the world. And what we need to do is find them, empower them and build the learning process so that they can share knowledge between one another. They can also gain access to any scientific advances that might hopefully help. But it really has to be the bottom-up movement. It's got to be led by the people living in those areas. And when they choose to promote biodiversity, that is when biodiversity really thrives. So there's a huge amount that we can all learn from one another if we can build that learning process together. And I'm hugely inspired by it. You've seen probably more how that works on scale in terms of regenerative agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a number of different governments that have put in place policies like payment for ecosystem service policies. Uh, we're working with the government of Ethiopia right now, who are tens of thousands of farms that they have paid them to promote biodiversity on those systems. But at the same time, that's improved their yields of those farmers, which makes nature the economic choice. There's one beautiful example I know very well in Ethiopia called Coffee Farm. And if you look on Restore, you can zoom in on the farm, you'll see the traditional footprint of agriculture, where the forest has been removed to make coffee. But on Desta's farm, you can zoom in and it just looks like a perfect forest. And that's because that's exactly what it is. He's planting the native coffee plants underneath the canopy of a beautiful tropical forest. And because the forest traps water and nutrients, he doesn't need fertilizers or irrigation. So his coffee plants grow really, really well in their native conditions and his business is booming because he's saving loads of money and because the, the nature makes his business more profitable 
that only incentivizes him to support nature more. And in fact, all the farmers in the nearby area are also incentivized to make nature recover on their farms. And that is when we start to see these feedback loops where nature makes people more money, which makes more nature. And that's when it thrives and sort of grows across landscapes. And not to mention the health benefits, I think that we've seen, at least in the Western world, that diseases caused by inflammation, which are related to our industrial farming system, can be reduced by the adoption of regenerative agriculture. Exactly true. We depended on nature for every aspect of our survival. We need it for our clean food, water, medicines, timber, all the products that we've ever depended on in our existence have come from nature. And that also includes our spiritual and our psychological health as well. The being of people is fundamentally dependent on nature. There is no ancient tradition or culture that isn't somehow underpinned or linked to the the, the value, the, the beauty of nature in those regions. And it really holistically influences every single aspect of our survival and our economy and our livelihoods. And so it's really important that we both protect the nature that we still have on this planet, but also build into our economic systems, like our agricultural systems, ways to allow biodiversity to recover and thrive in a way that improves all of our health and livelihoods. Yes. And so you spoke to planting coffee in a forest, essentially, and it doesn't work in all forests. It has to adapt locally. Can you give some examples about how it's important not to have monocrops and things like that, where the crop isn't just one, but like a, a diversity of plants? Right. So one of the most fundamental principles in ecology is actually that every single species on the planet depends on other species to survive. And that plays out perfectly in our agricultural systems or in our cropping systems, where if you were just to plant rows of one single species, there's a whole range of reasons why that doesn't work very well in the long term. First, each one of those individual plants will be competing for the same resources, the same nutrients, the same light in exactly the same way, which means they fight a lot with each other. Whereas if you have different plant species that take up different niches, one will take water from deeper soils and one will take it from shallower soils. That means collectively they make much more use of the resources that are available and they put on much more biomass and they store more carbon from the atmosphere and they make more products. But also they are more resilient. So if let's say a beetle, a pest comes through the system, if they're all the same species, that pest will destroy the entire thing. Whereas if they're all mixtures of species, the pest might eat one or two of the plant species and they won't be able to eat the others. And so this biological diversity is absolutely essential for the functionality of the system and the productivity of the yields, but also for the long-term sustainability of the system in itself. And so what are some of the new projects that Restore is planning? So what's really exciting is there's a growing body of evidence that shows that the, the depletion of our natural world actually stems from inequitable distribution of wealth. So the richer, the wealthiest part of our society gets and the poorer the rural communities get, the more that they are forced to exploit the land in order to keep getting enough money to survive. When you're living day to day, you'll make decisions that go against your best interests in terms of having a sustainable agricultural system or having a sustainable ecosystem. And where we see examples of wealth being distributed more equitably in the other direction, when the flow of wealth can move towards those local farmers, even if it's not incentivized, even if you're not saying, here's some money, you must promote nature. If you just flow wealth in that direction, nature starts to recover. And it's, it's not always the case, but in many places around the world, distributing wealth in the right direction leads to these improvements in biodiversity. And one beautiful example we've got is in Costa Rica. So 30 years ago, the government abolished the army and they put all that money 
into education and the recovery of nature. And, and the, the way they achieve that recovery of nature is simply by distributing funds towards local landowners around the country. Now, we've been going around all those areas and, and listening to the sounds of nature it's called bioacoustics. And what we can see is that the soundscape of those ecosystems is getting closer to the natural state. But what's amazing is we can show that recovery of biodiversity makes those ecosystems sound statistically more similar to what humans prefer. And actually, we compared it statistically to the sounds of Bach and Beethoven and other classical music that humans have historically loved. And actually, the complex, beautiful mixtures of sounds of biodiversity are much closer to the sounds of music that we inherently enjoy. And it just shows how deeply rooted our connection to nature is. As biodiversity recovers, it becomes more enjoyable and immersive and more experiential for humans because we've evolved in those ecosystems where we depend on them to survive. So lots of exciting things there. Oh, yes. It's so interesting, plant communication and non-human animal communication and the many ways that they are artists. It's like a concert. Everything is in flow and nothing is wasted. I know that seems strange to say, but I really believe nature doesn't just have a function. There's an artistry to it. I could not agree with you more. I think our utilitarian approach to nature has really been the source of the, the problem. We've depended on nature for everything that allows us to survive. But what we tend to do as humans is extract the parts that give us a function. So we extract the parts that are for food and then we propagate them. And we extract the parts for timber and we propagate them. And that leads to these monocultures that are not nature. They're extensive sort of reductions of biodiversity loss. And that is what has given rise to so many of our global threats and climate change and pandemics and food insecurity. That's all stemming from our utilitarian approach to find the functions of nature. Instead, what we need to be doing is promoting the holistic beauty of nature. And that is when it provides all of those functions that allows us to survive best. Yes, you had come under a bit of criticism for making the bold claims about a, a trillion uh, trees. But I think it's important to make these headline statements that catch people's attention. And you've said much the same because otherwise they're just papers that nobody reads. In a way, it's funny, the controversy around that actually stemmed primarily from a misunderstanding of what a trillion trees means. What our science showed that we need to recover a trillion trees. I never suggested that we should plant a trillion trees because that gives people the misunderstanding that, okay, companies can just buy up land and plant monocultures. What it was about is distributing wealth to millions of local communities that can promote biodiversity. And actually, that is what's been happening through this process. And that's incredible to see the, the millions of people that are being empowered by nature that they depend on. But you're right as well that sometimes I've felt sad about the controversy, but actually, overwhelmingly, it's been a good thing. Because as you said, if this had been a normal paper, no one would have noticed it. But because of that, the whole world started talking about nature and about how we need to revitalize biodiversity. So in the long run, more people got engaged in the process because of all that chaos. Indeed, we, we need to be woken up. It's a very serious situation. David Fenton, the um, progressive agitator, puts that 1.5 degree of change in more uh, feasible terms that it seem apocalyptic, that we're increasing heat energy into the atmosphere, the equivalent of a million atomic bombs worth of energy every single day. And maybe people will argue with that, but that paints a picture. Absolutely. It's always useful. We need to find the ways to be able to comprehend this thing. And that's why every time someone comes up with a big number like that and it captures people's imagination, it leads to a bit of controversy and there's a bit of chaos. 
But actually what's happening is it's elevating the conversation. So it's reaching a wider audience. And we all need to have our eyes open to the scale and importance of this challenge so that we can all engage in the process. Hi, Tom. I'm going to jump in really quickly. I'm actually familiar with your work through the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration because when I attended NYU, I was looking at that program about the loss of biodiversity in New York and its impact on the urban wildlife populations in New York City. So I noticed a lot of ecologists and climate scientists and other climate professionals debating to what extent scientists should just observe change versus intervening in nature's natural course. Sort of to give you an example, using gene alteration to modify the traits of a species that might be immediately susceptible to climate change. So you're clearly someone who passionately believes that human intervention is necessary to curb the effects of climate change and global warming. So can you please discuss with us how climate change education impacts how people comprehend their responsibility to act? Humans have always been a part of nature, and we thrive best when nature is also thriving alongside us. I always say that the global restoration movement is not a nature challenge. It's an equitable development challenge. It's a human challenge. When people are thriving, then nature will also thrive too. And so for me, the intervention of scientists should be about trying to find patterns and trends and mechanisms and hypotheses that can empower the people who are essentially doing the protection and conservation of nature across the planet. And if we can find smart ways of distributing this knowledge, the wisdom of indigenous people and the development of scientists and fusing those learnings together, that is when local bottom-up movements can really be empowered. And we're really starting to see that through the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration and others like it. Millions and millions of people are increasingly aware that a monoculture is not restoration and that biodiversity is the thing that we need. And it's like the, the conversation is growing and it's all about scientists and indigenous wisdom and everybody else joining forces to spread that knowledge. And you talk about oversimplification in terms of farming practices and the type of crops that are available, but switching on the topic of education, do you think there are oversimplifications currently going on about your job or maybe any misconceptions the public might have about your job specifically? I'm constantly stuck between two oversimplifications. One is I, I, I've had headlines about our research saying Crowther says plant a trillion trees. And then I go, I certainly never said that. And so then the next headline says, Crowther says, stop planting trees. I'm like, that is not what I've said either. Categorically, I don't want either of those extremes. What I want is to promote healthy biodiversity by empowering people across the globe. That means many more trees, but not just trees. It means many more microbes, many more frogs and amphibians and birds and reptiles and all the things that keep the ecosystem alive. It's the oversimplification in our communication is a really bad threat to the environmental movement. It's causing so much chaos and so much of our energy is being forced in the wrong direction. We have to be recognizing the nuance and the beauty of biodiversity that is a complex system and it's inherently complex. Sure, absolutely. And that being said too, I'd like to ask you about your work with Restore in that context, because when you founded it, I imagine you did so because you felt that there was this gap that needed to be filled in regards to climate change education. But what impact do you think that technology has when having these conversations about education? Is they offer any new opportunities to reach maybe new markets for people who might not know a lot of information? Or do you think it makes it easier for misinformation to spread? That's another great question. I feel like it, as a scientist, I'm always torn between two things. The practice of science is wonderful. It's so exciting and I love it. But the process is always about defining things or characterizing things or identifying individual things out of the whole. And yet it's the whole 
that we want to promote. So identify three trillion trees. That sentence doesn't include the infinite biodiversity of microbes and plants and animals that are all interacting to maintain those trees. And so every study focuses on one part of the system, and it's very hard for science to address the whole. But what I, I'm so excited about with things like Restore is that the science can be provided to those indigenous leaders who are recognize the value of the whole in a single scientific study. But you can, when you go out and sit in a hammock in the forest or when you go out and experience nature, you are wowed by the entire holistic beauty and majesty of nature. And what I'm excited about with Restore is the ability for the people who are recognizing the incredible inherent value of nature to then draw on individual parts of the data that can enhance their efforts. There's one group in Indonesia that was about 150 farmers across a watershed and individually no one of those farmers could get funding. But as a collective, we could show what a big footprint they were having all together and we could show how much carbon is being stored and how many species are being collected across all of those efforts. And then collectively, they received a huge award and a huge grant of funding from the UN decade because they could collectively show what they're doing. So all of this is just allowing this data to empower the people who are really promoting and enhancing the holistic value of nature as they go. Yes. And on that, as we continue to explore the role of AI as a powerful tool for advancing and scaling up transformative climate action, how do you see artificial intelligence making substantial changes for the betterment in developing countries? And and balanced with that, I also have some reservations because we're told that it's so energy inefficient. Yeah, the energy inefficiency is a big challenge that has to be addressed by the tech world. That's another part. I'll talk first about the, the pros, though, or at least the things that we have to consider, because if used wrong, this artificial intelligence could drive further inequality if certain people have more access to the incredible insights that are coming than other people. You know, it's richer people tend to have better access to artificial intelligence and the products that are coming out of it. And so that's a real challenge we have to address. But if AI can be increasingly available to everyone, it could be an unbelievable opportunity for equitable development on our planet because this is an unbelievably unique tool that allows us to learn collectively from everything that's been done in the past. The strength of all of our biodiversity predictions, the strength of our farming systems that will be improved and are being improved by the wealth of knowledge that have been experienced by millions of people over the last decades and everything on the internet now informs our, our collective decision making. So it can be an incredible opportunity for equality and the distribution of knowledge that could really be the foundation for such a movement like this. Yeah, I'm really excited about AI. I do think it's important to have proper governance because there are so many other avenues it can go. And of course, it's knowledge sharing, but it's taking to another level where the intelligence is disembodied. All these jobs and systems are under threat. Well, I wouldn't say they're under threat. I think every single development in human history has seemed threatening to the people who are doing the status quo. But actually what tends to happen is every new development opens up new opportunities and provides more jobs. I joke about it, but when we went from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age, I'm sure everybody who was working with stone was pretty freaked out when bronze came along. But the development of bronze then made loads of new jobs or new opportunities for all sorts of aspects of society. And that's the case for every single development we've ever had. When books came along, my grandmother tells me that her mother said you shouldn't be reading books because it'll lose your imagination. When electric lighting came, they were crucified in the media because it was going to be a limiting factor in some way or it would cause more harm than good. Every new development is met with necessary skepticism, but I tend to think that every new development, and AI in particular, can open up new opportunities and new jobs. But even if it's not new jobs, I think it might also open up an opportunity for us to rethink what life is about. You know, currently, 
are really down this one track that everyone should have a job and they should make money and they should work. And hopefully AI might be able to alleviate some of the, the hard tasks that we have so that we can have more space for creative thinking and enjoying our lives a little bit more. I, I, I'm quite optimistic about that. For those of us who aren't going to be involved in regenerative agriculture, we are living in the century of the city. I'm really excited to see how solutions that might be put forward by AI in terms of solving energy systems, transportation, or food systems, and, and all these things. And I, I love to see those clean cities of the future that really have a, a true circular economy. Absolutely. I personally think that cities, when governed well, particularly when they can take steps to integrate biodiversity, I think cities are a great development because they are essentially concentrating our population so that we take up less of the land surface. I think it's estimated that by the end of this decade, over 75% of the world is going to be living in a city. And if we can minimize the scale of our footprint that much, I would be delighted. Now, obviously, it's not our cities that are our biggest footprint. It's our agriculture, particularly our industrial agriculture. And we use most of the productive land surface for, for food production. And so it's this combination of sustainable living within cities and improved sustainability within our agricultural systems that is going to get us anywhere near a global restoration movement. As you mentioned before, as long as the governance is right on these emerging technologies and emerging tools so that they are equitable and available to everybody, you know, everyone's terrified of the future right now with threats like climate change and biodiversity loss. But if we can actually, with the right governance, make the most of tools that are emerging, we can still definitely make a better future that can empower millions of people to have very wonderful lives. As discussed in the interview, education is a necessary branch of climate justice. Pew Research revealed in 2018 Global Survey that those with higher levels of education are more likely to see climate change as a serious threat. But as Dr. Crowther discusses, inequity is a major contributor to climate change, and this gap factors into science education as well. Partly because of where they are located geographically, Many countries in the Global South are at a more immediate risk to climate change-related catastrophes than in the nor Global North. Think of small, low-lying islands being swept over by the rising sea, or crop yields dramatically dropping in sub-Saharan Africa. Nevertheless, many of the countries feeling firsthand the effects of climate change are also some of those with the lowest rates of climate change literacy despite the fact that they might have more native knowledge with how to adapt to these changing systems. But the West's efforts to improve climate change education in the Global South also brings up questions of sovereignty and autonomy. Since Western countries contributed most heavily to global warming in the first place with our agricultural, technological, and colonial advances, what makes them the authority to determine how other countries should act? Regardless, as a young environmental reporter, I believe Crowther is right that a multifaceted approach to education needs to be made simultaneously with improvements in our science and politics. People deserve to be educated about how climate policies impact their lives by their educators, and tools like AI should be used to include more voices into the discussion and curb misinformation. But until the day that technology has advanced to a point where it is accessible for all, we need to be diligent about making sure our current sources for climate change knowledge are reputable, peer-reviewed, and timely, and that they incorporate research from voices across the globe. And now back to the interview. You know, always when I think of these projects that are promoting growth of trees or restoring forests, then I think about whether they'll be lost in wildfires. The, the, the challenge is that as climate change continues to progress, 
the threats on our forests continue to increase. So we're getting more fires, we're getting more droughts. There's dangers of certain forests tipping from carbon sinks into sources, which means they're emitting more and more carbon. But that is exactly why we need more nature on the planet. We need to be cutting our emissions so that we can allow nature to thrive and help us along the way. For too long, people have been talking about we should do this or we should do that. We should stop emissions or we should save nature. Climate change is way too big for us to be squabbling about solutions. We need everything now. Yeah, it's a question of time. It's about how fast we get there. So we're going into the new technologies and how you're working with them and how you see them as a way forward for accelerating change. Yeah, I, the wealth of learning that can come from our collective awareness. You know, that essentially AI is a fancy sounding way of saying computers can learn from the collective wisdom that exists on the internet. And if we can empower the, the local stewards of biodiversity, the local landowners and farmers and in indigenous populations with all of that wealth, in, a, in smart ways. And that could mean the species that grow there or the types of soils that can improve productivity or the mechanisms to financial stability, whatever it is, those learnings, if they can be shared in a more efficient way, it can be incredibly empowering to those rural communities. And those are the ones that we need to thrive if we're all going to be able to survive threats like climate change. Indeed. And can you go into some of those economic incentives? You spoke about this group funding for diversity of projects because it has to make economic sense for people. Exactly. No one is suggesting that people should do restoration at the expense of their livelihoods. There's a lot of misconceptions where people say, oh, but you're asking people to plant trees, but they need money for farming. No one is asking anyone to lose money or to stop doing what they're already doing. What we're hoping is that people like regenerative farmers and conservationists will be empowered by this information so that they can lean into the power of biodiversity to make more sustainable economic futures. So when people make more money, because nature is standing, that is when nature thrives across landscapes. And the sort of hypothesis that we're trying to test, I think, is this idea that it's our systems that have driven the inequitable distribution of wealth that ultimately leads to degradation. So the, the thing we want to test is, if we drive the distribution of wealth in the opposite direction, can that lead to the regeneration of ecosystems? And what we're finding is that wealth equity is a very good indicator of how well nature does in different regions across the planet. Now, that can mean taxing the rich so that there's more equitable distribution of money. It can also mean payment for ecosystem services programs or cash transfer initiatives. The World Bank has tens of thousands of cash transfer programs where they've distributed funding to local landowners. And what we see consistently is improvements in biodiversity as people find more sustainable revenues, sustainable sources of agriculture and sustainable sources of finance. And that is what restoration means. It's, it's when people and nature thrive together, not one or the other. Yeah. And there's a pushback then from the, the different industrial farming lobbies supporting these already very profitable models that doesn't trickle down necessarily to the farmers, but it's the, the agribusiness that makes the money. And often we see that the, the small farmers are still suffering. So I understood that there's this increase in yield with the ad adoption of regenerative agriculture. I wondered if it's working alongside industrial farming, if farmers can get a premium also for agriculture, which is done on the regenerative agriculture model. But as, as that increases, then that premium would reduce. I mean, if you have more rich agriculture, farmers would not be able to charge a premium. Right. Well, that is the crux of the problem. Possibly, you know, I'm not an economist and there's lots of metric perspectives that really need to be taken into account. But the big concerning thing for me is if we look at all of the financial incentives that, that we have across most of the major Western nations, incentivize 
the ongoing propagation of large-scale agriculture. Farmers are being incentivized to continue with their practices. And what we need is people to being economically incentivized to take on more holistic and, and more regenerative practices. Now, the reason for that is that understandably, the agricultural lobbies in these countries is very strong. And it should be because they're the people that feed us. They are the people that allow us all to survive. But there's been a massive misconception because what I've encountered from many politicians is that every time there's a new goal to do large-scale restoration or nature regeneration, there's a lot of pushback from the traditional agricultural lobbies. And that's because it's always seen as a trade-off. It's either nature or agriculture. And that is the problem. What we need to be getting across is the fact that there is no trade-off whatsoever. If we don't have nature, you don't have any large-scale agriculture. If we lost all the world's forests, we would also lose all the world's industrial agriculture. If the Amazon rainforest disappears, you, you lose all the moisture that's necessary for all of the North America's large-scale food production. At the local scale, it can sometimes seem like a trade-off, but at the global scale, there is no trade-off whatsoever. And we need countries to be recognizing we need nature in order for that ag agriculture to continue. I'm certainly not trying to discourage agriculture or discourage investment into agriculture. I want investment into more regenerative agriculture, and I want people to recognize how vital nature is for us to continue our agricultural productivity. Oh, indeed. I get it that you're definitely not against agriculture. And just put this in context, and I don't know if it's overstated, but in terms of soil infertility, we're losing that fertility it seems small, but 0.3% cents per year over 100 years, that's 30% and soil fertility. So is that overstating it? I mean, we can't plant anything if the soil is completely infertile. Yeah, one of the classic feedbacks that we've got at the moment is that we grow the same crops every year. The soil gets more and more depleted and more and more weathering happens and more nutrient loss. And the more depleted the system gets the more desperately farmers need to expand and extract further. So the, the more we need to expand, the more we need to extract. And so it grows this consistent, increasing scale of degradation. Now, I've heard quotes that as a global community, we are three to five harvests away from not being able to continue producing agricultural products in the same scale that we're in. Now, th that's obviously a very extreme scenario, but it is true that we are depleting and depleting and depleting the soil system, which is our life support system. And so if we cannot find agricultural systems that rejuvenate the soil instead of depleting it, we are signing our own death warrant. It's like we definitely need to be promoting healthy soils if we're going to have any agriculture in the future. And let's talk about the um, animals' role in all this. This is a very good point, because I think when people think about nature, they often think about trees, and, and people start are now starting to talk about microbes. But animals are fundamental to the existence of an ecosystem. And what I often describe as sort of like the vectors of movement. They are dispersing seeds and spores. They're putting droppings. They're fertilizing soils. And that movement is what keeps the system alive and functioning. Without their ability to disperse seeds, we wouldn't have diversity of mixtures of species in those different areas. Without their ability to fertilize soils, you wouldn't have the growth of vegetation. And then it's the growth of vegetation that allows animals to spread even further. So it's really, again, this interplay between microbes, plants, and animals that keeps the whole thing going. Yeah. And those of us who do eat animals, if they're not healthy, if they're not grass fed, we're getting sick by eating their flesh. And so it's a complex thing because a lot of us here are vegans, but we need a certain amount of this new model of agriculture. We, it depends on animals helping to fertilize the soil. I totally agree with you. I was talking about wild animals and how we must be protecting wild animals within these ecosystems. The more animal movement we get, 
the more productivity we get. Simple as that. But you're very right. When it comes to our food systems, the more we can transition away from an animal-based diet and towards a plant-based diet, the healthier we're all going to be and the healthier our systems are going to be. Unfortunately, the largest footprint of our agriculture is massive deforestation to create food to feed the animals that we eat. And those animals that we eat, not only are they less healthy for us, but their production is depleting the rainforest that is what we need to survive. So I'm, again... I'm very much in favor of holistic grazing and there's many different mechanisms to source locally sourced meat and to have low density herd populations that are really regenerative to agricultural systems. But it's the mass meat production that is is one of the biggest threats to our biodiversity on the planet today. And just share with us, I know you came into the study of ecology through fungi, right? Just share with us what drew you to that and some of your experience of the natural world. Yeah, fungi were my way in. I think that it's a privileged way in because they're pretty magical organisms. These hidden below ground networks of species that essentially allow everything else to thrive. They recycle all the nutrients that come into the system. Every leaf that falls, every animal that dies gets recycled by those fungi. And then the nutrients are provided again for the ongoing system to thrive. So they're conceptually a very very beautiful thing. But in my early studies, I was looking at these fungi in Petri dishes. And it was so cool because When you have two fungi fighting against one another in a Petri dish, one of them usually beats the other. But then when you add a third fungus to the Petri dish, in many cases, that new fungus might fight more competitively against the winner of the previous interaction. And if that's the case, it turns into like a rock, paper, scissors system where one beats the other. And when that happens, all three of them just continue to survive in the Petri dish. And actually, the more and more fungi I add to the Petri dish, the more likely we are to find those that we call them intransitive loops where one beats another, which beats another, where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so once we got more than 10 fungi in the Petri dish, we would never lose diversity. They would all stay. When we only had two fungi, it would always collapse and then they would both die. When we have 10 fungi, all of them would survive in the long term. And it was this like very visceral experience of how diversity promotes the stability and and survival of a ball. It's so fascinating to think about that. And you mentioned before the microbes and to reflect on them, our microbiome and how that influences us in so many ways. We are just this envelope <laughs> microbes that we carry around. Exactly. We're just a moving ecosystem. It's just that we've got this weird thing called consciousness that gives us this impression that we're somehow separate. But we are just part of the ecosystem. We're a bag of microbes that's interacting with all the microbes around us. And I think there's a a real need for us to appreciate our harmony and our interrelatedness with nature. I do think that the biggest challenge we've had over the last hundred years is our separation with nature. And I think people often think of things like fungi and microbes as dirty and the mold on your bread or whatever. But when you discover the wonder of these things, it's absolutely, it's an endless source of inspiration. You know, there's fungi in Costa Rica that I've seen, which glow in the night. It like looks like a scene from Avatar. It's just like unbelievable worlds of life. And it's particularly this microscopic world that like the smaller and smaller you look, the more like alien wonder world that it starts to look like. It's very inspiring and it it makes it easier for you to throw your life into sort of promoting the health of the planet. Yes, that's that artistry again of the natural world, of these paintings that they they make. So as you think about the future and education and teachers who have been important to you, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I had a very tangible interaction with a teacher that 
totally shaped everything in my life. I struggled in school. I always liked nature, but I'm dyslexic. So I struggled with reading parts of school. I was doing really badly. I managed to get into a, a good university in the UK. And then I actually ended up messing around in a class with 300 students, one of those huge auditoriums. And I was messing around and I threw my friend's hat off and it unfortunately landed on the projector. And the teacher at the time was furious, understandably, and he sent me out of the class. But he met me after that class. And he essentially said, what are you doing? Why are you in this class? Why are you here? And I was like, I like ecology, but I just can't keep up. And he was like, if you like ecology, that's all you need. What do you mean you can't keep up? And I was like, I, I'm dyslexic. You know, there's too much reading. It's too much statistics. And he went, if you like ecology, just find the bits that you like and do that. And at the time I was like, I thought he was a crazy old man. But I did. I just, I actually started doing these little experiments with the fungi in the Petri dishes. And I didn't need to read anything to do that. I just needed to look at the fungi and find them fascinating. And then that gives you positive endorphins when you have a successful experiment. So you do another one. And then I just immersed myself in the parts that I enjoyed. And through that process, things started to go really well. And my degree went really well. And then after that, my career sort of exploded. And it's genuinely, I know if I'd not encountered that professor, there's no way my career would have gone the direction it has done. And I just think teachers are unbelievable inspirers, not necessarily for the knowledge they give you, but more for just inspiring you to follow your own path. And that's, I think, what we need to replicate in the restoration movement. I think people who live on the land know what they need to do. We just need to collectively find the tools to fund them and, and encourage them and support them and enable them and give them the tools that, so that they can rebuild the world. Because I think we all have this inherent connection with nature and it's all about spreading that belief that we can do it. Well, likewise, your passion is infectious. I can imagine for anyone working with you, collaborating with you. I did want to ask, I know that when you were at Yale, you had a stroke. I was wondering what that did to focus your mind on the future, on your projects, what's most essential and what to put your passion into. I did have a stroke and it, it was mad. I came from nowhere. I was just living my life, doing my studies with my fungi. And then, yeah, it's called a pontine stroke. It's one of the most serious it's in the pons region of your brain, which is the brainstem where all, all of your autonomic things are controlled, like your breathing and your speaking and things you don't think about. And when that happens, many people die or they are in a wheelchair for a long time. It's a very serious stroke. And I was under the impression that I was going to die. And waking up the next day was obviously the best day of my life, but also it just really crystallized my focus. I needed to understand the scale of what I was working on. I needed to make every minute of my work count towards something bigger. I, I, I think before that, I was always too scared. I was like, oh, I'm not smart enough to try and really help. I'm not smart enough to make a difference. And after the stroke, I was like, who cares if I'm smart enough? I'm just going to try my absolute hardest with every fiber of my being. And I enjoyed my life more after the stroke. I enjoyed my life more since throwing myself in, into this sort of mission in, in a larger way. So it was definitely a really big change of perspective from that moment. Yeah, it just makes all the dust go away and focuses you on your vision, I can imagine. Yeah. Thank you, Tom Crowther, for your important work promoting restoration, biodiversity, helping create economic incentives and empowering people across the globe, and, and for just sharing that we're all part of nature, not separate from it. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much. What a lovely conversation. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Catherine Gross with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Catherine Gross. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. 
Additional production support by Sophie Gagné. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.